0: Produced by the iLab at WBUR, Boston.
2: Hey, Anything for Selena listeners, this is producer Kristen Torres. The episode you're about to listen to is a behind-the-scenes look at the making of Anything for Selena and a and a with host Maria Garcia, producer Antonia Serrahido, and me. In this conversation recorded live over Skype during a virtual event with our friends at WBUR City Space, you'll find out answers to questions like, what did Selena's family think of the podcast? Which episode was cursed? What's next for the team? All that and more coming up. Take it away, Maria.
3: I'm going to be very on brand here and I'm going to start with the Creosote Bush. If you haven't heard the first episode, the creosote is a plant I describe when I open the series. So let's hear the clip.
4: If I was somehow asked to say only one thing about the place I'm from, it would be that it has this unforgettable smell when it rains. It's slightly floral, but mostly it's this very specific, cool, earthy desert aroma. And there's usually a calm, clear breeze, which carries these concentrated little pockets of fragrance.
1: Mm.
4: Oh my God, there it is. The smell comes from the creosote bush, a resilient plant that thrives only in this particularly arid landscape. Especially after a thunderstorm, the creosote bush releases a bunch of these oil compounds into the air stuff found in citrus, rosemary, pines, and it just smells like the earth exhales. Creosote can live for thousands or tens of thousands of years. It's one of the oldest living things on the planet. And here, this ancient brush grows at the foot of the Franklin Mountains and the valley they nestle below. Cutting through the desert valley is the Rio Grande, dividing two cities and two countries. El Paso, Texas to the north, and Ciudad Juarez in Mexico to the south. Yeah, so
3: that's um, the beginning of the series, the beginning of episode one. And I wanted to share this clip because... um, I think it sort of sets the groundwork for the lens that we're telling these stories from. It wasn't, you know, in my day job, this has been my day job for the last year, but um, what I do for a living is like, I think about journalism a lot and I think about our craft and I think about um, how we do journalism honestly. And I always tell young journalists like, do not abandon the lens um, that you're telling this story from. acknowledge it and know what place in the world you're telling it from there is no such thing as telling a story from a place of nowhere we all occupy a a place in the world and for me that's the border for me that's being like a first generation mexican-american um who has deep deep ties um to the frontera um and and that And that includes in many ways, like a sort of an ethos of fronterizanis, you know, of of this duality that is evident in everything about me as a person. Um, But it's also visceral. It's also like just this this attachment to this land, you know, to the desert. um, And everything it, it represents for me. And so I just wanted to sort of set the tone and say, this is the place in the world that I'm telling this story from. This is, um, yeah, this is the lens that I'm taking. Um, so I wanted Kristen and Antonia. I know you all remember this moment. I wonder what what you all thought about it.
0: I was. I remember being thrilled like I was like this is hot (laughs) and I think I I was I was excited because it's yes it's your perspective both like both like where it's telling who where you who you are and where you're from but it's also like this is the kind of storyteller I am like this is going to be a poetic journey and I think like podcasts bio podcasts like you don't often get like the approach on a storytelling level was just so exciting and people don't know this but Maria writes and like stanzas like we've like she doesn't <laughs> like I've never seen scripts like the ones that she writes and I think it really shows in the language and it makes it just very beautiful to listen to
3: I actually did not realize that I wrote that way until you all pointed it out and I was like oh my gosh yes <laughs> it is like one long 30 page poem <laughs>
2: Yeah, I remember Antonio was pro creosote and I was creosote skeptic. I was like, hmm, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Um, And, you know, it's so hard when you're reading a script to kind of get the feel for what it's going to sound like and how it's going to all come together. But I do remember listening to the first mix of episode one, um, which was mixed by our really awesome sound designer, Paul Veitkus. And just thinking, like, wow, this comes together. This is what she was talking about, and I understood it. I got it, um, and I'm really happy that we that we opened that way.
3: Um, okay, so let's move to episode two. This was an episode where I truly did not go to Corpus Christi thinking, oh, this is going to be an ode to Latino fatherhood and sort of breaking the narratives about Latina daughters um, through Selena and Abraham and through the way that i'm experienced a relationship right as as a as a daughter who loved a father who was complicated um and and who's still sort of grappling with the legacy of that relationship you know with the legacy of my own father's relationship um so We decided, though, you know, I wasn't even thinking about this when we flew to Texas. I was more thinking about, like, is he even going to see us? (laughs) You know, is he even going to like, I don't know. We were we were genuinely just really concerned because he had kind of ghosted us. He wasn't that interested in talking to us. He had flat out denied the music rights. But I just knew. Like as a journalist, like I had to give it my all, you know what I mean? Like I had to really, I, I had to make sure that I did my whole due diligence. And that, mean, that meant like flying blind to Corpus Christi, <laughs> you know, that meant just like getting on a plane and being like, when was vamos, vamos a ver como nos va. <laughs> so uh, let's listen to a clip of, of when we
4: went to lunch with Abraham. The next day, Abraham allowed us to record.
1: It's not recording right now, right?
2: It it, it is. We went
4: to the Hi Ho, a Tex Mex restaurant he's been coming to since Selena used to join him a quarter century ago.
1: I want the same pereo con carne. I want it in a bowl. And uh, do you have just regular beans? beans? Yeah. Those
4: tortillas look good. There's a big painting and dozens of photos of Selena set up like a shrine on one of the walls of the restaurant. A lot of people came up to Abraham to say hi. No, uh,
1: you, you don't know them. They are from here. No. You're just trying to hit on her. That's all you're doing. No, I'm not.
4: I was still slightly on edge around Abraham scared that I'd mistakenly say something that might offend him, that I'd encounter the Abraham of the Selena movie. Sometimes it was a little awkward, or more like I was a little awkward.
1: All right, you're going to ask questions?
4: I, I, <laughs> I will. All
1: right. Lunch goes on. Are, are you just going to...
4: I have to admit, I listen to this tape now, and I'm like, "God, Maria, you ask questions for a living. You've been a journalist for a while. What happened here?" Mr. Quintanilla, does your does your wife cook? Does your wife cook a
1: lot? We out, we eat out all the time, out of a can.
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, my laugh! Oh my God. Um yeah, so so it was it was a fun time with Abraham. Kristen, you were at this lunch, but do you, re- you remember how imposing he was?
2: Yeah. I mean, it was always kind of hard to, I mean, he was very funny and he had lots of dad jokes, but he was also hard to kind of relax around. And I think the the memory that sticks out most in my mind is when we met him, we were in his office and he had us kind of introduce ourselves. And we were like, we had our stump speeches prepared. Like, this is who I am. This is where I'm from. And this is what I'm working on. And I really love Celine. And then he would just like cut you off and be like, all right, next. <laughs> I was like, you so would totally be like, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like, okay, he's, he's, he'll talk to us, but he's going to kind of control how much he wants to say and all that kind of stuff. So that yeah. was our first inclination. Yeah. Um,
3: so I have a question here from Jen. Uh, what insight of any, was gained about Selena's mom? I'm so curious about her and what happened to her since Selena's passing. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we did request to talk to Marcela um, a couple of times and she, she really wasn't interested in an, in an interview. And we, we always came at this, um, honestly with a lot of love for Selena and a lot of, um, respect for her family. And so we, you know, after, after a couple of times of trying, you know, we, we respected her boundaries. Um, but you know, Mr. Q talks about her a lot. He talked about her a lot. He, um, he told us like their whole love story when they met, um, he was in the army in, um, in Washington state. And he was one of the only, um, like young, um, young GIs with like a car. And so he would go to like surrounding towns and he was on his way to a date, like, like on his way to like another date with a woman who he had just met. And then he saw Marcella walking to like a movie to like the movie theater. And he just like made a U-turn and he was like, Hey, like wanting to talk to them. But then they like went into the movie. So he just waited around. <laughs> he just waited around till they got out of the movie. And then he like, you know, made his move with her. But Um, he, he talks about, you know, he tells stories like that. And she called multiple times when we were hanging out with him, Kristen, like, it's very clear. They're like a very tight knit family. Um, and she's just, you know, she doesn't go to the museum every day. Like Suzette and and Mr. Q are there all the time. Um, but she doesn't, you know, and, and I think, you know, that's obviously by choice. You know, I think that she honors Selena. And her legacy in a way that looks that's not as public-facing as Mr. Q and Suzette. Um, But yeah, I I I would love to meet I would love to meet her too. Um, Anyway, from anonymous Abraham was apprehensive about giving the rights to the music to not devalue Selena's legacy. What are his the family's thoughts on the podcast? Okay, so Mr. Quintanilla texted me um, after he heard episodes one and two, and he told me. That he was proud of me um that he was that he was proud of the story um and he said that it made him cry um and that it took him on a journey episode two and um that it was really great work <laughs> which, is, which is like oh my god that was that was the moment when i was like oh wow I was just like a weight off my shoulders i was so thankful but Um, So episode three, so the first two episodes are like super intimate, right? It's really me like unpacking what Selena means to me and, um, you know, confronting my father's loss uh, by meeting Abraham. But episode three is like when we really zoom out into the world, you know, Um, when we really break down how Selena's symbolism like transformed into a political statement and like particularly the weekend after her death. Um, and we revisited like some really cutting words by Howard Stern, uh, that to me, at least, um, were aimed or, or to me, they conveyed whether he meant them this way or not, a sort of diminishing of the value of her life. Um, so let's, let's listen to an excerpt from that episode.
4: And so the day after Selena's death... When every national outlet featured devastated Latinos crying on the street, Stern and his producers made fun of them while playing Selena music.
1: Let's dance to a happy Madonna-like music. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dance and forget the people starving to dance. It's oh, <laughs> a spicy food. <laughs> Let's burn our brains out with the peppers. Yeah. Absolutely no feeling whatsoever. <laughs> if we wait till nighttime, the dogs won't bite us when we sneak into Thanksgiving in California. It's limbo under the border. Our country is so bad we have to sneak out in the middle of the night. But so let's listen to vapid music. Anything that keeps our minds off of our terrible plight.
4: As a nine-year-old child of Mexican immigrants, I didn't even know who Howard Stern was at the time. But when I discovered this tape, even 25 years after Selena's death, it felt like Stern made a mockery of our mourning. Our grief for Selena connected us, made us visible in this country, but also made us a target. So
3: it's one that really revealed to me um, that mourning Selena was political, whether people wanted it to be or not. Um, Because to not mourn her or to dismiss the mourning of Selena the way Howard Stern did was really to devalue Latino life. Um, So this was where we really unpacked why she became a political symbol and and why she's inherently a political symbol. Antonia, I wonder if you can tell us how we were thinking or shed some light on sort of at this point in the process, how we were sort of unpacking the politicizing of Selena.
0: Yeah, I think this was, this was I think, probably up until that point, the most challenging episode we had to write um, because there were so many things. One of the things that happened at that time was that there were those Trump rallies around the Selena statue. And you and Kristen had talked a lot about how you wanted to do an episode about symbolism. And there was a lot there, but I think, especially because this was a, it's a podcast, all of us, every time we heard that Stern tape, like we froze. It's just, it's chilling to listen to. And like, every time I hear it, I get angry all over again. Um, and so I think that that, kind of opened up like the the vehicle with which to talk about this like identity that is created in contrast to to that hatred. Um but it took us a while because there were you know it was um there's so especially thinking of Selena as a symbol it's just there's so much out there and like how to articulate that and once I think we pinpointed that it had to revolve around that stern tape I think it really all started to come together.
3: Yeah. No, I agree. Well, Kristen, you and I, when we were talking about this episode early on, we were thinking about how maybe we could hang it on um, her monument in Corpus Christi and how, you know, uh, sort of when when the monument was erected, there was actually backlash from white Texans who didn't get it, like who didn't understand why, um, you know, uh, a pop star... Um, merited sort of this this prime real estate on the waterfront of Corpus Christi, where um, there's mostly like
2: statues of literal colonizers, <laughs> you
3: know what I mean? um, like you know, literal Spanish colonizers.
2: And yeah, so- the early episode title was "The Monument" for this episode. <laughs> yeah,
3: and you know how you know it, her statue is like she's. Um, you know, she's in a bustier, right, with her, like, leather jacket open and sort of, like, standing back. And it was just, like, this contrast to the other public art that's that's there. Um, but ultimately, like, yeah, when when we started doing the reporting and really starting to, like, di- did some some real, like, yeah, just some real digging about what it was like the weekend after her death, like what the national conversation was like, what the vibe was like. We were like, Oh, this is the moment. This is the moment. Like even before her monument, like this is the moment when she became a symbol like this. Um, Okay. Let's go to butts. Uh, (laughs) Episode four. Um, Okay, so I was looking at an early outline of what episodes we would be tackling. And I remember like this was, there's a lot of episodes like the one we just talked about episode three, where like, there was a sort of, the early iteration was very different than how it turned out. But this one, it was sort of difficult to sort of write and report out. But it was one of those early ones where, like, it was so clear to me. It was so clear to me that we had to have an episode about the evolution of the butt, like, really, really early on. Um, so let's let's hear a clip.
4: By the late '90s, practically every article or TV interview with JLo brought up her butt it was a whole butt craze 21 jennifer lopez turned the fashion world on its ear with a bottom that shot her straight to the top
1: i don't know this is you and your underpants i, I like that
3: i like no. that i like looking at girls in their underpants
1: really. you know you can start drinks on her butt really she came with two limos one for her one for ass that's right it's just our time Thank women you. with the big booty
4: But there was at least one TV personality who wasn't that impressed.
1: Because there's been all this talk about, like, you know, my girlfriend Gail, I didn't even know this, but my girlfriend Gail and I talk all she goes, you know, like people are always talking about her bottom.
4: This, of course, is Oprah on her show in 1999.
1: She goes, but honey, tell her that if she wants to see a bottom, I'll show her my bottom, that's a bottom. And everybody's always saying, she has a big bottom. You just have a bottom that's in proportion yeah. to, to yourself. Yeah. I have a, I have a, you know, a large rear, I guess, for the norm. But you know, for me, it's normal. For what norm? No. Because black you know? women have had this bottom exactly. all our lives. And Latin yeah. Women are the same
3: way. Yeah. So this this episode is about the cultural evolution of the butt. Uh, but really, it's a deep exploration on like Latino identity on at least this current iteration of Latino identity from the nineties until now and blackness and how Latino identity, um, sometimes capitalizes on, on black culture. Um, Antonia, you were the lead producer on this episode. What, what was it like working for you on this episode?
0: So I remember as fast as you said, this was something you wanted to work on. I was like, I want to produce that episode. I was like, I'm obsessed. I need to do that. And it's, um, I like, you know, my voice is not part of the Selena podcast, but if there is an episode that feels very personal to me, it is this one. And it's because I think identity is something that's, is often very relative. And like, I grew up in very white spaces and I was a gordita in my family and I had, I was Culona And then, all of a sudden my white girlfriends were telling me that like, it was g- great that I had a butt. <laughs> and so I'm like, I like reached puberty at the age of like the Jennifer Lopez craze. And so like, I felt that. And I also felt that like my sense of identity was wrapped around a lot of like emerging Latinx content. And so I was really like all of this stuff about like Latina magazine and how they promoted the movie and like all of those things, especially I've worked for Latino USA for seven years. so like for me, it was like understanding like how I got to where I got. And then of course, understanding like how problematic a lot of that has been. I I think we're, it's, I'm very happy. We're at a place where I think the public conversation is like really confronting these things. And my hack was off to you, Maria. Like I, a lot of the writing at the end is from, is from you about, about how blackness, um, is set aside in the Latinx community or is, is literally. Uh, are treat, you know there's so much prejudice within the latinx community and um having those big ideas synthesized in that way i don't know to me that like that episode is extremely personal and it's like fun but it's deep and like i love the high low it's just i i love that episode oh and the curse sorry the curse was that Nobody was getting back to us. Like we were like, re- we didn't get JLo. We sent her like a ton of messages. We didn't get Mimi Valdez, who I was really excited to get, or Dream Hampton, who did a lot of like the early reporting on J-Lo for Vibe magazine. And those women are incredible. And the contribution they've done to journalism and like cultural analysis is amazing. And if they hear this, I love you. <laughs> um, <laughs> and after it works, but then we, we started to get some yeses. And I think it all really came together.
3: Yeah, no, and shout out to Melania Luisa Marte, um, the poet uh, who writes a lot about um, not just the erasure, but like the deep, deep embedded like anti Blackness um, within Latinx identity, um, within Latinidad. And so talking to her about this, like I think helped us really. Um, put into context like why this butt you know why it matters how we treat the butts like why it matters that that it was J-Lo who was able to sort of capitalize on her body and Mm -hmm. other women at the time other artists um, who had very similar features right Mm -hmm. Um, so that yeah that was that was one of the One of the hardest episodes to produce, but one of the ones that I knew we had to do. Um, Let's see. Anonymous. I have never seen anything that hints Selena struggled with imposter syndrome or self-doubt. Do you think Selena ever struggled with not believing in herself? I'm not sure that she struggled with imposter syndrome the way we talk about it now, because she started singing when she was eight years old. You know, it was something she was told all of her life that she was a singer. Her identity as a person was very tethered to her identity as an artist, as a musician, because it was fostered in her from the very beginning. So I, I don't really think about her and an imposter syndrome in that way. But I do believe that she was much more vulnerable and that she was much more just like human and unsure of herself, um, in many other ways. Um, you know, the, the story that we have in the butt episode, for example, in episode <clears throat> four, um, when, the, the keys get stuck inside Big Bertha when they're at the Whataburger and, you know, Selena tries to save the day and she's like, no, don't call locksmith. I'll get in through the passenger side window. And she tries to get in and then she gets stuck, you know, because her, her butt can't fit. And, you know, Mr. Quintanilla told me like, it got a little hairy. Like at one point they wondered like if they had to call the fire department, like things got, things were a little scary for a bit, you know, because she was stuck. Um, and you know it became sort of like this this the story became lore, like bad lore, you know, and and people talk, you know be, the musicians laughed about it often, and that night they laughed about it. and you know, Mr. me she never laughed about it, you know, and that that night she cried like she cried on the bus on the way home, like after it had happened. Um, she wept, and you know. I wonder I wonder you know what what it was like for her to be so visible you know this was pre internet but already like people were people talked about her body constantly and of course that's every pop star and I know you know she was fostered for that and, um but there's there's a lot of other moments of vulnerability like Chris Chris Pettis in his book, So With Love, he talks about how she had nights where, um, you know, it didn't happen often, but once in a while where she would just cry and cry. And, you know, he talks about like, you know, there were moments where she would just sort of collapse on the floor, you know, that happened a couple of times because of how stressed out she was, you know, because of the pressure she felt. Um, And feeling pressured in different directions you know with with her artistry um so so I don't, I don't really think about imposter syndrome in that way in her but I do think that she was much more vulnerable and human um than how she's been presented for sure and Kristen you did a lot of research on her like you found moments you know like I feel like when we talked about Selena we talked a lot about
2: her like as a person you know yeah and I think so many of the interviews that we've seen I mean we've seen like every interview that exists so many what always struck me is that so many people asked her like you are such a good role model what is it like to be a role model almost as though they were putting I mean she took it in stride and she 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 would say like I do see myself as a role model and I, I do try to um you know have the best example that I can because I have a lot of young fans. Um, but I do sometimes wonder like that that's a lot of pressure for someone so young to feel, especially in the 90s, especially in that cultural moment, to feel the weight of representing not, not only young women, but sometimes an entire culture. And that just must have been a lot of a lot of pressure that I wish that we could hear her talk about what it was like to do that. I mean we we hear so much about Britney Spears right now and what it was like to um, have all of that pressure and media attention. And you wonder what it does to to some of the people that we love the most and celebrate.
3: Yeah, totally. I agree. Um, so moving on to episode five, uh, in this episode, we talked about the tension between assimilated Mexican Americans and in Texas and new immigrants and how that played out in a big fight for visibility on the radio. Um, this was one of the most fascinating and surprising turns of the podcast because I genuinely thought this episode was going to be about how Selena revolutionized this underdog genre, you know, with rural working class roots. And we do tell that story. We do tell the story of like the way Tejano came to be um, after the Civil War, when, when Mexicans were being lynched in Texas, it came from like a pretty dark time. Um, but during our reporting, you know, we uncovered that the story of Tejano is actually—it's one of immigration, you know, and power and money and the way capitalism pits two groups against each other. So let's take a listen.
1: Today, they took the genre of Tejano out of the Grammys, and they just give it to regional Mexican, which is Mexican groups.
4: Did that shift? from, you know, Tejano to regional Mexican music in the radio, did that intensify tensions or resentment between well, Mexican-Americans?
1: among us, about, um, among the, um, the Texas musicians and, you know, the people that follow that, you know, what's up with that? You know, this is us, this is our culture, this is where, and now they're just treating us like uh, 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 original Mexican radio stations here in, Te- in, in San Antonio, Houston, here in Corpus, they would not play a Tejano artist, period.
4: This is hard to hear because my parents are part of that 90s wave of immigration to the U.S., the one that contributed to the changes in radio, My mom listened to the radio stations that the Tejanos didn't understand and maybe didn't like. Those radio stations made life easier for immigrants like my mom. She listened to them to hear people like her, to feel at home. How did something that made my mom feel grounded here work to make Tejanos feel displaced in their own state?
1: The American corporations don't care about cultures. They care about that mighty American dollar. And they know that there's more Mexican people here living in the United States than there is Mexican Americans. So that's what they're going after. There's money, more, more money.
3: Antonia, um, you co-wrote and produced this episode. what What surprised you about it?
0: I remember like the two moments that I feel like this episode unlocked were first, Kristen told me she's like, there's this d j Bo Corona. I've seen him in a couple of clips. And Bo, yeah, and Bo is like oh, Bo together. Maria kills me. I love it so much. I think he's amazing. He's great radio. I, I love him. And then also, you had pointed me to a couple of articles about um about the uh, the specific law that changed, like the Telecommunications Act, and like that is. I also love like how geeky this episode gets into like NAFTA and the Telecommunications Act. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's like, yo, you think it's gonna be like a fun music story, but then, and I really like that turn, but I, like, I, yeah, I liked that it was exactly what you said, like, once the immigration and the sort of, like, radio elements were there, and then you, and then you added the beautiful aspect, like, talking to your mom.
3: Okay, episode six. Oh, (laughs) I think this is, um... This is such a big part of the heart of the series. Um, So Kristen and I have been on the Selena journey the longest for more than a year. And Kristen, when you told me that story about how your grandmother, you know, didn't allow your mom to speak Spanish to you or to teach you Spanish. um, I knew that we, that we had to explore including it in the podcast because um, I knew that we really had to like go deep on Selena's legacy of like legitimizing not speaking Spanish and not or not speaking Spanish fluently. And you know how for so long you you fled, you know, you fled your roots. And I think that's that's a common a common story for a lot of a lot of Mexican Americans. Um so it was an incredibly personal and like sometimes painful, painful story for you. Um, let's hear. Let's hear an excerpt from
4: it. Some of Selena's most beloved moments are when she struggled in Spanish, like on this infamous clip from her appearance on Cristina, where she got a roaring laugh from the audience for saying the number fourteen wrong.
1: un secreto. A ver, casi todos los diseñadores ponen si es un 16 lo ponen que es un
0: on 14.
1: 14, perdón. ¿Quién Un diez Así se habla. Así, ese, ese Tex-Mex, Tex-Mex, diez y Pero me entiendes, ¿verdad? Catorce, <laughs> disculpe. Y para Selena qué, says para the 30.
4: equivalent of 10 and 4 instead of 14. Cristina is like, that's so Tex-Mex. And Selena's like, well, you understand me, don't you? Sure. People would poke fun at her sometimes. This is a clip from the Johnny Canales show when Selena was already super famous. And Johnny Canales is still like, oh, remember when you were a kid and you didn't speak any Spanish, just the word for money? Hey,
1: papi, ¿dónde
0: está
1: mi dinero?
4: And Selena just plays along. It was one of her signature things, never taking herself too seriously. I mean to speak Spanish. And there's this, one of the most famous and most quoted lines of the 1997 biopic, when Selena's getting ready to give her first big press conference in Mexico. Flanked by journalists, she tries to explain in Spanish how she feels.
1: Tienen preguntas? (laughs) En esta tu primer visita a Mexico, ¿cómo te sientes? Pues me siento muy orgullosa de estar aquí con todos ustedes. Y me siento muy. Me siento muy. Excited.
3: Oh, that clip, it still gets me. Like, it's still so endearing when they hear it. Um, so those clips, you know, they're humorous, uh, but they're also really profound because it was like Selena dissipated in a way, sort of these generations worth of trauma that Mexican Americans have around speaking Spanish. Um you know, trauma that we see in our own families. Um, And Kristen, with your grandmother, Carmen, who grew up during repatriation, you know, when local governments were deporting Mexican-Americans to Mexico, even if they were U.S. citizens, just because they looked or sounded Mexican. Um, What was it like revisiting this chapter in in your family through this episode?
2: It's really interesting because so much of the way the story was articulated and kind of came together, it really was the product of the research about Selena and the research about her own story and hearing from Abraham and hearing from Suzette about why you know maybe Selena originally didn't speak English and what I'm uh, sorry Spanish um and so it was kind of going through the same source material and essentially finding these parallels in my own life and it really all kind of brought it together and made me feel like oh This was what kind of was going on in my own life. And and especially exploring some of the history of the repatriation and the language policing, they tied back to these stories that my grandmother would tell me, but she would be very vague about them. Like we had to be careful. We had to watch what we were saying. And I never really put it together until we traced the timeline. And I was like, oh, that's when she was a child. Um, And so that's when it all kind of came came together and, um, she's here, I'm wearing her necklace. So, (laughs) um, this has been a really special episode To It's, it's been a, it's been a real pleasure and an honor to share that story and to hear, hear that story, um, in your voice as well.
3: Yeah. And we've heard from so many people like who related to this episode so, so much, like so many people who said, this was my story. It's like, it's like, it was, it's like you were telling my story, um, and that's been so powerful. Um, let's go to some questions. The most recent episode was incredibly powerful. What do you think is next for Latinidad? And um, you know, we're taping this right as the the episode on race um, just published, uh, and it's it's the story about why Selena's brownness is an essential part of her legacy. And it's a story about Mexican identity and racism through the lens of my own family and um, the colorism and, and racism um, that my grandmother, you know experienced as an indigenous woman, and uh, the favoritism that that I did um, as a fair-skinned girl. And, and in terms of, what do I think is next for Latinidad? I mean, I think, I would hope that it's interrogation, that we are interrogating, continuing to interrogate who Latinidad really serves. Is it used as a tool of white supremacy? Um, what role do we play in it as a tool of white supremacy? And I think it's looking not just at society, but looking um like the episode does inward, looking at our own families, looking at um, erasure and racism and colorism in our own families and how our families uphold a um, Latinidad that favors whiteness. So I hope I hope that is next, an interrogation of it. Uh, more questions, Anonymous, season two? I don't know, Anonymous, we'll see, We're, here's hoping. I don't know, we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> gonna leave it open um you know we've gotten in the last three weeks or so no joke i have gotten five dms five dms from people who are like so when is um when is the juan gabriel podcast gonna come out <laughs> <laughs> and i have to tell you i'm thinking about it you know he's a Livo de juarez um My mom met him once and I, and, and, but it would, what if it's like a podcast about queerness and belonging? Anyway, that's just, that's just me sort of meditating on it on the spot. Um, what else? So awesome hearing a podcast out of Boston centering our culture. Do you have any more podcast projects coming up that you can talk about? Not at the moment, not at the moment, but you know, when you never know, you never know what the future holds.
0: You should listen to the other Cultura podcast. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. there, there's a lot.
3: What we should listen to after anything for Selena.
0: Suave, the podcast from Futuro is amazing. Um, it's about Mariano Fosa's relationship of 25 years with a um, with a juvenile lifer. Who, his name is Suave and he's an incredible person. Then there's um, La Brega came out if you want more bilingual podcasts. Um, fully out, you can binge the whole thing in Spanish and English. Uh, stories from Puerto Rico by Puerto Ricans. So I, those are two that I would recommend.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, we are so proud of the work that our partners at Futuro are doing. Um, it's been like a dream collaboration, the sort of like WBUR and Fududo Alliance. Like, um, it's everything. It's everything you could have ever asked for. Honestly, like this team, I'm just, I've been so proud to work with you all. I've made me a better journalist um and i've also been just really humbled by our listeners um and the comments that we hear from them so i just want to say thank you for everything you've shared with us about how the podcast has touched you thank you for sending us like your stories for opening up about your own lives that's been the most beautiful part of this is to hear people say like oh my gosh, listening to the podcast led me into my own path of exploration, my own family, my own roots, my own identity and to me, success for this podcast is measured by how it resonates with the community who really knows Selena and I'm grateful this work has resonated with you all thank you so much for being on this journey with us
2: that's it for this episode. Anything for Selena is a co-production of WBUR and Futuro Studios. Learn more about anything for Selena at WBUR.org slash anything for Selena, and check out the City Space lineup at WBUR.org events. Special thanks to the City Space team for production support, including Alex Schnepps, Candace Springer, Amy McDonald, Adam Strauss, Michael Diffin, and Niall Foley.